Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 121 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hello. Hi, everyone. It's good to talk to you. I have a list of points I want to talk to you about in this intro. Wow. Oh. Just coming in fast with that. I mean, I will say, Paige, as this is how Bailey approaches every conversation, she will uh, say hello to you and then whip out a list. Hello. Pleasantries over. Now list. <laughs> I like to imagine this is a physical piece of, of like a scroll she's unfurling. <laughs> well, it's, it's not that far from that. It's been a long time since we've recorded and it's like we have a lot to talk about. We can't delete dally to make sure i hit all these points in this <laughs> intro that's normally so casual anyway uh do you guys see that the new my favorite thing is monsters is actually coming out there's a release date what? is it is it though publisher says april 9th 2024 mm. april 9th mm. awfully close to april fool's day that is I true yeah i want to need to see it physically in my hands i would need to see the uh the spike and ballpoint pen sales to believe yeah. it <laughs> I need to see the boat that it's on in the Panama Canal leaving the other side. <laughs> the last one was like 2016. It's been a long time. We've been waiting for part two, part two of two. I can't wait to find out what happens to the characters. If you know, you know. I'm excited. Okay, point. Next point. <laughs> wow. Brisk pace. Brisk pace. <laughs> First episode of the two realist that is 19 minutes long. <laughs> All right. The next point I have written down here, um, point two, lecture Toby. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's every week. Though. Uh, this is always on Bailey's list, though, so I'm ready for it. Weirdly, even when she's not hanging out with you. It's true. Yeah. Just <laughs> in general. Uh, it says lecture Toby, uh, re his list. Toby, oh. Toby, you need more books on your list. Um <laughs> You don't um, have enough, and it's making us feel bad. Wait, wait, Bailey. What is the point of what we're doing here? This whole like song and dance we've been doing for so many years, isn't it to reduce the books you have on your list? No. Yeah, I'm winning. What will happen, Andrew, is it'll be just you and me and Toby sitting smugly every episode. That would be a good podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, my, my aim is to finish all the books I ever want to read as soon as possible that I don't have to read anymore. There you go. Isn't that all of our goals? I've read every book. Uh, yeah, well, Bailey has a point. Um, I did take a very heavy set of pruning shears to my list, mostly because uh, I didn't like reading Wise Blood. <laughs> I didn't like reviewing it. <laughs> I didn't like sounding dumb when I reviewed it. So I went through my list and I applied the litmus test that is uh, very useful, where I imagined for each book, I imagined the choosing. I imagined Dylan giving a very creepy and bizarre intro <laughs> to each book. <laughs> and if it made me feel a bad feeling, I cut it from the list. So I cut quite a few books from the list. <laughs> <laughs> so now I, I only have ones that I'm very excited to review. And there's still plenty. Mm. I just start my own Marie Kondo show. <laughs> it's just Dylan showing up to your house being like, you sure you want that? You sure you want that? <laughs> no, he introduces every item in your house in like a creepy and strangely <laughs> obscure way. It's funny you make a joke, but what if this joke was infinite? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you add more books, Toby, because um, point three, I heard that you added a new book recommended by a listener. <laughs> 
<laughs> Good transition. Thank you. Uh, yes, I did. I got a recommendation from Pedro Moira, who heard that I mentioned on a previous episode that I enjoyed the Abhorson series that starts with Sabriel by Garth Nix. If you haven't read it, check it out. It's an amazing YA series starring a young woman, Sabriel, who is a like a necromancer and she has like a bandolier of bells. It's super freaking cool. Anyway, she recommended that I read uh, The Left-Handed Booksellers of London, which honestly I hadn't heard of. But yeah, I've added it to the list. It's in there. Dylan can give a creepy intro for it any day now. It could be today, Paige. But probably it won't because I've said that. But yeah, I'm excited. Don't tempt fate, Toby. Anything more on that list, Bale? Yeah. Or can we have free discussion time? The last one is, does anyone have any shame? <laughs> uh, no. Andrew? Uh, I don't have any this time. I uh, somehow, even though it's been so long in between recordings, have resisted the urge. Well, I have one shame. Oh. oh, do you? After your shame, we can check in about how many books I've read, too. Ugh. Every time. Um, The other day I was going for a walk in my lunch hour and I found a new little free library by my office. Very exciting. And this one had a book in it that I felt like I had to get. Oh, did you? It's The Rabbit Novels by John Updake. I have the first two in one volume already on the to read list. And then this is the last two in one volume. And so I was like, oh, I might as well get the complete set. It's free. It's right here. It looks really pretty. Although I'm very nervous about those getting chosened, not only because there's many books in one volume, but because I once tried to read them and really hated them. (laughs) But here's the thing. My dad really loved them. And so I felt like he was like reaching out from beyond the grave and saying, read these books, you must do it. So so that's why I picked it up. So now you have to feel bad about calling it shame. You wow. called it shame. I didn't say anything. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Andrew just wanted to talk about how many books he'd read. You could have just skated right over that. Oh, speaking of, I've read 59 <laughs> books, 34 books ahead of schedule. Wow. I've decided I have already succeeded. There's no way to fail now. However, <laughs> I am going to try to get to 100. 100? It's realistic, wow. frankly. I guess you have plenty of time, given how you're doing. Five months to get through 41 it's tight it's gonna be tight but it might happen (laughs) andrew i do feel bad for you because you just said there's no way to fail and then listed for yourself an extremely difficult goal (laughs) that you could possibly fail at. but there's no way to fail my reading goal which was remember (laughs) 42 books (laughs) (laughs) you have accomplished that uh andrew i have a recommendation for you on audible the book the wager by david gran is excellent i have a physical copy of that however that's signed That's right. Why don't you know my life a little bit? (laughs) Bailey, do you bet that he'll like it? I would place a wager on it. Anywho, um, does anybody else have a list of points they need to talk about? No. No, I'm normal. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then. Toby, did you read a book this week? (laughs) Don't don't blame Toby for this. You're the one that ruined your own transitions. You're right. (laughs) Uh, No, I I think we're just a little rusty. We had a couple weeks off. (laughs) So our transition is okay, then. All right. Yes, I did read a book for this episode. I read The Planet of the Apes by Pierre Bouillet. Spool? No? It's just Bull. Yeah. Oh, you're right. You're right. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, I did read a book this week. I read The Planet of the Apes by Pierre Boulle. Ooh. Mystery. Society. Apes. Charlton Drama? Heston. Love. All right. Well, here's your logline. In Pierre Boulle's satirical science fiction classic, Planet of the Apes, a French journalist from the year 2500 travels through the cosmos and discovers, to his shock and horror, a planet upon which intelligent apes rule and unthinking animalistic humans run naked through the forest. Ah, so he's a journalist in this one. 
difference. Yes, there's a bunch of interesting choices like that. Okay. So I'm going to go through a little bit of a plot summary of the kind of beginning of the book because it's very fun. Um, this book was written in the 60s, and like a lot of classic science fiction, it has some really hilarious choices as regards the science, <laughs> like hilariously loose decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, the the main character's name is Ulysses, but it's spelled and pronounced in the French way, which is hard to do. So I'm going to call him Ulysses. <laughs> He is, as Bailey noted, a journalist. He's chosen for this mission, this first uh, interplanetary mission for humanity. He's just kind of chosen in a lackadaisical way by this professor and his assistant to accompany them on the flight of a space machine that the professor has created that can travel near the speed of light. Uh, The professor has decided he wants to check out the Betelgeuse system, which is only a few light years away. It's all pretty straightforward, right? Uh, So Ulysses must hate his life on Earth um, (laughs) because he does mention that he's aware that because of relativity, the years he spends near the speed of light means that many hundreds of years, I'm not sure how accurate this actually is, will pass at home on Earth during his journey. But he doesn't really care. He wants to go. So they travel to a planet near Betelgeuse and do like the most chill science ever. (laughs) They land on the planet. They open the door. They say, hey, the air is breathable. They sort of wander over to a body of water and within five minutes, they're swimming in it. It's just some pretty chill science. Their their idea of science seems to be wander around. Um, Then, of course, immediately upon about 10 minutes being on the planet, they see a beautiful naked human woman like you do. She is fascinated by them. Ulysses names her Nova just because uh, she doesn't talk and she can't tell them her name. They follow her uh, and she leads them to a group of humans. And I'll note that uh, Ulysses and his friends are only mildly surprised that there are human beings on this planet, but something is wrong with them. These humans have no spark of intelligence to them. They don't speak really at all or they don't communicate in any way except kind of grunts and kind of animalistic noises. Very, very soon after that, Ulysses and his companions are caught in the middle of what turns out to be the equivalent of a pheasant hunt put on by apes. <gasps> yes. The apes uh, kind of chase them through the woods. They shoot and murder a bunch of the humans and capture a bunch of the others to be taken into the city. Ulysses ends up becoming a test subject in a laboratory. The professor ends up in a zoo and the third guy is shot and he's done. R.I.P. R.I.P. third guy. It becomes obvious that by an extraordinary coincidence, uh, this is a planet upon which apes, intelligent apes rule, and they have created a society almost exactly parallel to 1960s Earth. Wouldn't Ah. you know it? And uh, things kind of progress from there. That is the setup. Okay. Yes, Bailey? I'm familiar with the movies because... My understanding is the reason why you added this to the list is we had our friend Charlie Sanders on years Uh ago, and Charlie insisted that I watch all of the Planet of the Apes movies, and I did. Um, And some of them are very fun. But the first movie is pretty much exactly what you said, yeah, except for journalism. So I'm in. Faithful adaptation. Well, yeah. So I think Andrew might know some stuff. (laughs) Um, But I'm going to hop right into my orcs. Okay. Apes and humans. Well, which one's the bad one? Because that's the question the book is asking. Ooh. Anyway, orcs. Um, 
the book has a bit of a rough start. Uh, there's a framing device that I'm not even mentioning because it's kind of a waste of space and it's a very obvious twist that you see coming. Uh, the thing with Nova, this gorgeous human woman who's naked and strolling around and much ink is devoted to how hot she is and how naked she is, had me rolling my eyes pretty hard. There is a fair amount of your usual 1960s sexism, but it's all to be expected. It's honestly not nearly as bad as in other books that uh, we've covered on this podcast. I do have some quibbles with the ending, but I will cover that in a spoiler section. So, elves, is it's mostly elves. I'm surprised because usually when you start with orcs, that is not the case. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I threw you off. It's almost like a surprise. Uh, What Bool ends up doing is honestly pretty clever, um, and he has an eye for these kind of creepier moments than you expect. Um, It starts right at the beginning when the apes hunt the humans. Um, There's a moment where Ulysses is kind of captured and he's watching the gorillas uh, in particular kind of drag the dead bodies of the humans around and display them kind of like humans display big game back on Earth. It's not described in like a gross way or particularly viscerally, but it's really unsettling. Um, And he has a good eye for detail. There's a moment where a female gorilla comes over and kind of clips a lock of hair from a dead woman's head and puts it in her hat, kind of like we would put like a feather from, Mm -hmm. I I don't know, a bird in your hat. And it's just really uh, grim and unsettling. And uh, he just has a great eye for that kind of stuff. And that kind of leads to throughout the book, he draws a lot of uncomfortable parallels between our treatment of animals on Earth and the kind of arrogance we have at assuming the Earth is ours to take and manipulate as we please, and the treatment that the animalistic humans receive at the hands of the apes. It's a well-done satirization of hunting, animal experimentation, and general animal cruelty. Um, If it was only that, the book would be pretty good. But Boole also satirizes uh, most of human society in the end as well, especially the sciences and academia. And he represents those with a combination of chimpanzees, who are young, energetic, forward-thinking revolutionaries, and orangutans, who are conservative, repetitive, backward-looking pedants. And he kind of plays those two off of each other, with the gorillas being the kind of overlords of this world. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Most interesting, more interesting than both of those put together, however, is the dynamic that springs up between Ulysses, Nova, the beautiful human woman, and the female chimpanzee who first recognizes Ulysses for what he is and helps him eventually escape from the laboratory, who's named Zira. I think that if you had 10 people write this story, zero out of 10 of them would come up writing a love triangle involving a human man, an animalistic woman, and an intelligent chimpanzee. But that's because you didn't get Pierre Boulle to be one of your 10 people, and that's on you. I see what you did there. Boulle's rules. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a bizarre aspect of the story. It's at times kind of uncomfortable, especially given Nova's lack of agency in the situation. But Ulysses and Zero's relationship is truly the most interesting part of the book. It's where things get the muddiest and weirdest and most complicated. And it's actually quite touching at times. So yeah, those are my elves. And now I'm going to go into a spoiler section. Spoilers ahead. So the the movie, as is in the case with some of the best cinematic adaptations, makes a pretty genius change to the end of this book. In the book, it's slowly revealed, kind of clumsily at times. Uh, some people have their brains, some of the humans kind of have their brains zapped, and they just sort of start spouting exposition. Um, but this planet, it turns out, was exactly the same as Earth. There was an ascendant race of humans, but the humans got complacent, question mark, and the apes rose to take over, 
and force the humans to become kind of animalistic and lose their intelligence. Ulysses, in the end, is forced to flee the planet with Nova and his newborn son. Only when he returns to Earth, several thousand years have passed, and the same thing has happened to Earth, and now apes rule the Earth. Obviously, the movie makes a much better choice of it having been Earth all along. Hence the famous image of the Statue of Liberty poking out from the beach. It's just a really kind of, it just feels like a third draft, right, of the idea. And the ending of the book really suffers in this capacity because it's just not quite as dramatic and exciting. Plus there's the hilariously unbelievable coincidence that this far off system of Beetlejuice happens to develop an exactly parallel society to Earth. So what Pierre Bull is saying is that we need to keep chimpanzees down and make sure that they never uprise. So we have to be even harsher in our treatment of animals. <laughs> that does seem to be his point. Yes, okay, yes. Good. Um, but yeah, despite that kind of like, you know, a, a weaker ending than maybe the, the movie has, this was an entertaining, very quick read with honestly more going on under the hood than at first it appeared to me. I really, really enjoyed it. And if you're curious about this, I would I would say check it out. So four stars. Nice. Ooh. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad you liked it, Toby. I'm sure Charlie, who clearly still listens to this podcast, will appreciate that. Of course. Um, uh, Andrew, do you have any facts on Pierre Boulle? Some Boulle's rules? Yeah. Ooh. All right. Let's get into some Pierre Boulle facts. Um, there's a big fact in here that I'm curious if any of you also know already, but we will see. Mm. Pierre Francois Marie Louis Boulle. Oh, wow. Old PD5 names. Was <laughs> born on February 20th, 1912 in Avignon, which is in France, obviously. He earned an engineering degree from the École Supérieure d'Electricité, also known as the Supilec. Good one. Um, when he was 21 and uh, soon after moved to Malaya, which is sort of a loose name for the colonial states of Britain in Southeast Asia, mostly on the Malay Peninsula. And he mm. was an, an engineer for a British rubber plantation there until 1939. Wonder why. Yeah, maybe we'll get into that in a second. <laughs> During this time, I find the only information available about his love life, which is that he fell in love with and exchanged romantic letters with a woman who was separated from her husband. However, she elected to return to her husband, and uh, the two later became sort of platonic friends back in France. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, France has a rich history of platonic friends. <laughs> Um, 1938 might have stuck out to you, as it did. Um, because, yes, the Second World War was what interrupted Bull's work, and he joined the French army in Indochina, and later the Free French Movement in Singapore. Um, for a little yeah. bit of context, the Free French Movement is the name given to the displaced government of France during Nazi occupation, which was led by Charles de Gaulle, in opposition to the, like, the pliant and collaborative Vichy government that they installed in France at the time. For context, as we go forward, Free France... Good. Vichy government, bad. All right. Now things get a little wild. You're welcome. <laughs> now things get a little wild because he served as a secret agent. He called himself <gasps> Peter John Rule in a move straight out of a blockbuster. He was trained in subterfuge and espionage at a place literally called The Convent, where Boole said, quote, Serious gentlemen taught us the art of blowing up a bridge, attaching explosives to the side of a ship, derailing a train, as well as that of dispatching to the next world as silently as possible a nighttime guard. It's that Taron Egerton movie. The Kingsman? Kingsman! It is not quite like The Kingsman, but it is sort of, I guess, like that. Is it like, secret agent pool, secret agent pool? 
you really wanted to get that in, Bailey, and I'm glad you did. I did. <laughs> um, I guess it's like that, Bailey. Um, Thank you. <laughs> he aided the resistance across the continent uh, until 1943, when he was captured, when he was trying to infiltrate Hanoi on a handmade raft by Vichy forces and was forced into hard labor. Those are the bad guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They'd be the orangutans in this situation. Yeah, I think they would. So he was forced into, he was a prisoner of war. He was forced into hard labor. His experience here inspired his third novel, which was his like coming out novel, um, which was titled The Bridge Over the River Quay. Ah. Oh. Is it why? I think it's That quiet. was the thing I was waiting for you guys to see if you knew that. Wow, I did not know that was him. I did not know that either. That's wild. He also wrote a memoir titled My Own River Choir. Oh, well. He went more to uh, the facts in that one because he changed a lot of things yeah. about the story mm-hmm. in Bridge Over River Choir. Um, after the fall of the Axis forces, Bull received medals from France for his service and remained in Asia until 1949 when he returned to Paris where he'd lived for the rest of his life. He began to write and moved in with his widowed sister and his niece. And then he released Bridge Over the River Kwai three years later and it was a major bestseller. Um, it was adopted into a movie that won both Best Picture and Best Actor for Alec Guinness. And also winning an award for Best Adapted Screenplay was Pierre Boulle, despite not writing the screenplay or speaking English. Uh, oh, okay. Because whoever writes the original gets the Oscar? No, because the two actual screenwriters had been blacklisted for alleged communist sympathies. <laughs> oh, come uh, on. Oh, uh, McCarthy. Yeah. Um, the uh, Academy later added their names officially, and Kim Novak accepted Boulle's Oscar in his place. He wasn't there, apparently. Mm. He probably got the invitation to the Oscars in English and didn't know what it meant. (laughs) Or he was like, I didn't write this, so please. (laughs) Um, There's not a lot left here. Uh, While Bull published a lot of other novels that had perfectly fine success, the next big crossover hit with at least English-speaking audiences was 1963's Planet of the Apes, which, ticklingly, was originally translated as Monkey Planet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Planet of the Apes is a better title. For sure. It was immediately a success and well-reviewed and obviously spawned its own film adaptation along with many sequels, a remake, and a reboot. All in all, he would publish 23 novels, many short stories, and some nonfiction. Wow. And he passed away at the age of 81 in 1994 in Paris. And that is Pierre Boulle. Wow. Well, thank you for those facts, Andrew. I found that very interesting, and I'm glad you liked the book. Yeah, Boulle, thank you for an interesting life. <laughs> <laughs> so that is Planet of the Apes by Pierre Boulle. Four stars. Four stars. So, Bailey. Yeah. I know you uh, had a whole list of things you wanted to talk about, but was on that list reading your own book? Yes, it was. I'm so glad you brought it up. We have to move on. We have to move quickly. Um, This is my point. I did read a book this week. It's called Yes. Boy Snow Bird by Helenoya Yemi. And snow, snow, snow. Mm-hmm. I'm like a bird. Only boys know. I don't know. (laughs) No, keep going with it, Dylan. Dig down farther. I don't know where my boy is. I don't know where my snow is. (laughs) Okay, I liked it. I liked it, too. Yeah, solid 7 out of 10. I like it. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so this book I got as a gift from my friend and friend of the podcast, Kate, for Christmas, I think, I don't know, seven years ago? A long time. Sorry, Kate. I'm finally getting to it. There's a lesson here, Pejos. If you ever give Bailey a book, she really sits on it for a while. But I mean, again, if I didn't have this podcast, who knows when I would have read it. So now I'm reading it yeah. and I'm, I'm glad I did. So I did read another book by Helenoya Yemi for the to read list, which was called White is for Witching. Um, I think I mentioned mm-hmm. on the last podcast that I read that the first book coming back from maternity leave. So I remember it just being like 
completely obfuscating and it really hard to understand what was going on. But maybe it was mm-hmm. that I was sleep deprived. So yeah. like mm, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> impossible. I feel like maybe I should give Wise for Witching another chance because this one did not have that at all. It was much more easy to follow. It turns out Bailey was reading Wise for Witching upside down the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I would not have been surprised. Um, M is for Mitching. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the book follows three characters. Guess what their names are? Uh, boy. Yep. No. Yep. Barbie. Don't- uh, okay, so the first character, Boy, um, is a woman. She is a white woman who grows up in New York City, and she leaves her abusive father and takes a bus as far as she can go and ends up in the small town of Flax Hill, Massachusetts. And this is in the 1950s, so obviously things in the South are still segregated. But in Flax Hill, Massachusetts, everything seems idyllic. And she is named Boy, as I said, and she meets a widower who has a daughter named Snow. And she marries him. And then later, Boy and the Widower have a child named Bird. Is that clear? I mean, I have questions about the names. I'm sure they will be revealed. I don't have any questions and I do not want it revealed. So you might notice um, the second name, Snow. Um, Her name is Snow Whitman, which might sound like, I don't know, Snow White. Dun, dun, dun. What? Saul Goodman. (laughs) When I finally read this book, when I got it, I was excited, you know, to get a gift from my friend and thought, oh, yeah, I'll read this right away. Um, And in the blurb of the book, it says that it is a reimagining of the Snow White fairy tale. So I was excited for that. But when I actually got down to reading it, I took off, you know, the, the cover, the dust jacket, and I just didn't have any context and started reading it. And I had forgotten that it was Snow White. And I think that might be the better way to do it. Hmm. Because I didn't realize until about halfway through, or not realize, I didn't remember until halfway through it was supposed to be Snow White. And then once I got to that point, I couldn't stop looking up the original Snow White fairy tale and trying to find parallels to the story. And I just needed to stop. Mm. I'm having a hard time imagining it because it would it be is is boy the. So boy is the evil stepmother witch. Step, yeah, that's but okay, interesting. So I didn't realize that until about halfway through because you are sympathetic to boy, um, and boy talks about how she is being cast in this role of evil stepmother, um, and you sort of realize how that's happening. But the real villain in this book is not boy; it is the mirror. Which we start the book starts with boy saying nobody ever warned me about mirrors. So we see it right away what the theme's going to be. Um, it becomes not only talk of uh, beauty and womanhood, but also race is a huge part of it. Um, obviously, Snow is considered beautiful because of her like white skin, but it comes out that she's actually her family is actually black passing as white. And so Bird is born with darker skin. And there's a lot of themes of colorism, of trying to pass, of racism, et cetera, et cetera. But in general, looking in the mirror and having it betray you. Hmm. What's on the outside is different from the inside. So this is all great. Um, And the biggest selling point, I think, is Oyayemi's writing. She's an incredible writer. She's really inventive, has a really strong voice. Um, I will give you an example. This is page 15 when Boy just arrives in Flax Hill. She says, As for Flax Hill itself, I was on shaky terms with it for the first few months. Neither of us was sure whether or not I generally intended to stick around. And so the town misbehaved a little, collapsing when I went to sleep and reassembling in the morning in a slapdash manner. I kept passing park benches and telephone booths and entrances to alleyways that I was absolutely certain hadn't been there the evening before. 
I just think it's mm. interesting the way she phrases things. Like instead of like I was getting used to this new place, it's this town was playing on tricks on me every night. Yeah. Well, it also has like a like a really cool like fairy tale. Yeah. T- like taste to it, but also kind of modern. I really like that. And that's that's a great point. The fairy tale is suffused with the modern and the like issue oriented. So that's really well done. So in general, I was really into this book. And then the ending happened. Uh oh. And then the apes came. <laughs> for those of you who've read the book, you will know what I mean, but I'm not going to spoil it for other people. In the last two chapters of the book, Oyayemi makes a big swing completely transforming one of the characters and it's really problematic and I don't understand why she did it it didn't add anything and if anything it made me more confused and then I left angry at this new problematic element and also disappointed because I felt like there wasn't a clear conclusion to what I thought was a really good setup it just kind of fizzled away Bailey is the twist that bird turns out to be a goose and he's just a jerk (sighs) it's a she and no, I wish. I, I can't figure out who Bird is in the fairy tale. If somebody can tell me that, please let me know, because I really want to know. Is she the huntsman? I thought maybe. And then I thought there's another fairy tale called um, Snow White and Rose Red and they're sisters, but hmm. that doesn't fit parallel-wise. Anyway, this is an example of how I got caught up in it. <laughs> so all this to say, I was really excited by this book. I was really excited by the beginning was quick to read. I was into it. I was thinking this is going to be four or five stars. And then the ending just pulled the rug out of it for me. And I have to give it three stars. Whoa. The big trace. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of just like being disappointed. Yeah. It is kind of like being disappointed. It is kind of like it. Just kind of, though. Just kind of. (laughs) But Andrew, do you have any facts on Helen? I know we've covered her before. Yes, I do. Yay. Ooh. Yes, so Helen Oyeyemi, we covered her initially in episode 44, which was called Wolf is for Witching. Um, It was White is for Witching and Wolf Hall. Uh, So look back to that if you want to check it out. But it's been a while. Um, I'll give you just some sort of basic overview, and then most of these facts will be taken for a profile with NPR. Helen Oyeyemi was born on December 10th, 1984 in Ibadan, Nigeria. Apologies if that's pronounced incorrectly. Um, And was raised in South London from the age of four onwards. Her father worked as a substitute teacher and her mother worked for the London Underground. And don't have a lot more information on her childhood, but she would write her first novel, The Icarus Girl, while studying for her A-levels when she was 18. A few interviews, she said she did it instead of studying for her A-levels, but she must have done okay because she attended Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, which would be a great answer for categories. Oh, yeah. <laughs> During her time there, she continued to write both novels and plays. Two of her plays were performed and then published, and I believe another novel was at least started the process of being published while she was doing it. So she's been successful from a very young age. Boy Snowbird is her fifth novel, and her most recent novel was published in 2021, and it's titled Pieces, but spelled like plural of the word um, peace, as in like the opposite of violence. Hmm. And she says that elephants are her spirit animal. Oh, Yeah, you weren't expecting that? (laughs) I wasn't. So the rest of this is from an interview and profile with Annalisa Quinn from NPR. All right. So Quinn writes, Oyeyemi was something of a child literary star, having written her first book at 18. But now she's almost 30 and on her fifth book, the label is beginning to chafe. Oyeyemi says, it's getting to be embarrassing because I'm getting older and older. I'm 29. I just have to brush it off now. Otherwise, it's going to stop me from doing what I want to do. I want to get better. I want to write things. I'm seeing this as a long game. I want to write as many books as I'm allowed to publish. Quinn then adds, 
Elephants are just one aspect of her. That's why I threw in the elephant fact, because that was earlier on in the article. (laughs) Well done. Elephants are just one aspect of her intricate personal symbology. She keeps talismans, keys that don't open anything, teapots, certain scents. She's a spiritual magpie as well. She is Catholic, but says she's, quote, in it for the mysticism. (laughs) And she says she's afraid of cats because she can't account for their intentions. (laughs) Monsters are real. Magic is real. Then a quote from Oyemi, which says... The way that people feel changes everything. Feelings are forces. They cause us to time travel and to leave ourselves, to leave our bodies. I would be that kind of psychologist who says, you're absolutely right. There are monsters under your bed. (laughs) (laughs) So a bad one. Depends on your your style. Jumping ahead a little bit, she talks a little bit about her... um, her childhood uh, and what turned her on to writing. She says, I was always at the library since we didn't have many fiction books at home. Reading Little Women as a child turned me into a writer. I had so many problems with it. I was so upset about spoilers, Beth dying (laughs) and with Joe and Lori not getting married. So I crossed out all those things and wrote new endings. Then I went from there to writing my own (laughs) things and never really looked back. She's a fan fiction girl. Louisa May Alcott fan fiction. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, her version of Little Women is just full of cats that you can't trust. (laughs) (laughs) So this is... uh in response to why she was attracted to the Snow White story, uh, Oyemi says, I found it so strange how she could be so mild and so sweet after everything she's gone through. She's thrown out of her house by the wicked stepmother. She has to live with these dwarves. There's so much front to it. And it started to scare me because I thought that beneath that front, there must be so much suffering. Snow, in all her unexposed beauty, and being in a way public property of everyone who looks at her, goes through that. I find something so terrible about suffering in the open, in public, with nobody seeing what's happening to you. Yeah. It's a really insightful reading of the of the fairy tale. Yeah. She now lives in Prague, um, and she's moved around quite a bit to try to find the right space. She says, I feel a need to choose a city or have a feeling that it chooses me. I hit something in Eastern Europe. There's something so strange about it that ties with my psychology. There's a kind of volatility. When the changes happen, they're fantastical changes. Like in Prague, just recently, the Festival of Light. There's a tower on the hill, and they transformed it into a lighthouse and the hill into waves. So when the city changes, it's a big shift. Cities like New York and London change in increments. Places open and close. Places like Prague and Budapest, they change. Nights in Budapest are so dark, maybe because the street lighting is so terrible, but the nights seem darker and full of shadows. And apparently that's attractive to her as a writer and a person. This interview brought to you by the Prague Board of Tourism. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I have. If this was interesting to you, this is an interview profile with Annalisa Quinn from NPR. I suggest seeking it out. She seems like a very interesting person that I would want to chat with for a while. That was great. Thank you for those facts, Andrew. Um, Good facts. If any pages have read this book and want to talk to me about, first of all, what the symbolism is from Snow White and or tell me, Bailey, stop thinking about what the symbolism is from Snow White. Please, please hit us up on Instagram. (laughs) Uh, So that is Boy Snowbird, a reluctant three stars. Snow, snow, bird, bird, bird. Snow, snow, bird. Andrew, I know you just gave us some great facts, but do you have any great games for us? Please. I hope it's a great game. We will see. So the name of the game this week is called Save the Writer, Save the Planet. Mm -hmm. It's a hero-space game? It's a hero-space game. Yeah, exactly. So here's the deal. First of all, you two, Bailey, Toby, you're working as a team. This is not a competition, except that you're competing against dying. Aren't we all, though, at all times? (laughs) True. Because astronauts, we have a mission. One of your fellow astronauts, Dylan, went nuts and disabled your ship after an argument before leaving via escape pod. Ha ha! Dylan. I keep doing this. 
he has buried the override code to get your ship running again behind some riddles. That does sound like me. I love it. <laughs> Each of the answers to the riddles is an author that we have covered on this podcast who also has a minor planet named after them somewhere in the universe that has been observed. Oh. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. You may think, how many could that possibly be? The answer is nine. <laughs> wow. There are nine authors with minor planets named after them that have appeared on this podcast. If you include ones that are on our lists to be covered, I think it's more like 15, but we haven't gotten all of them yet. Wow. Wow. So the way this will work is I will tell you a like quip phrase um, and the answer will be an author. You guys can work as a team. If you get it correct, mm. that's one correct answer. You need six correct answers to unlock the ship and survive. That is, you need to get two out of three of each of these answers correct. Math. That's so like Dylan. Six is his favorite number. It's true. <laughs> it's true. All right. So are you ready? Uh, yeah, I rolled yes. for initiative. Beep boop, beep beep boop. <laughs> There's no initiative necessary here, Bailey, you child. <laughs> Um, <laughs> a trial a cockroach you're gonna have a bad time franz kafka right. yes right so teamwork not bailey's thing <laughs> yeah well what was what i say toby do you think it's franz kafka fine toby it's franz kafka next one <laughs> all right that is correct you have one correct answer you need a five more to win Next clue. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. Tolkien, Bailey. <laughs> so now Toby's turn to not play. I agree. <laughs> Bailey, would you have gotten that without Toby? Be honest. Uh, no, honestly, I was thinking of the Pretender song. So. Oh, so really, you know, you could think of it as if we have two correct, but you could also think of it as one to one. <laughs> You could. You might need to collaborate eventually on this, so I would. I'm holding a space butter knife behind my back. I'm glad you have a space one and not just a regular one. Yeah, it, it cuts upside down. Next answer. What a foundational talent. Asimov. Asimov. This is, game is too easy, guys. I thought you guys were idiots. <laughs> Also, I think I said that first. I love how it's too easy, but also you kind of assumed they'd work together. <laughs> <laughs> I did think they would work together. Yeah. Andrew, I'm going to start a private chat, so uh, I'm just going to start answering my, <laughs> my answers that way. <laughs> is there a way that only I can get through the lock? <laughs> <laughs> All right. That is three out of three. You are doing quite well. Next clue. Consider him. Consider him. David Foster Wallace. Mm. Nope, that's incorrect because you didn't work together. <laughs> <laughs> Had you taken a second and realized that Consider the Lobster by David Foster Wallace was not covered on this podcast, but Consider Phlebas by Ian M. Banks was, you oh. might Wait. have survived. You didn't say the book had to be covered on the podcast. You said the person. I didn't. And as we all know, D Toby has read David Foster Wallace. Oh, I'm sorry. Does that make him have a planet named after him? Bailey, it doesn't. I read Infinite Jest. Uh, let me tell you about it. <laughs> Toby, would you have gotten that? Uh, no, I don't think I would have, honestly. I, I was I was with you on David Foster Wallace. So, peace? <laughs> peace. I buried the butter knife in her shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that is one incorrect. Things are getting a little dangerous. Uh-oh. Here's the next clue. Bad dreams in the night. Bad dreams in the night. Nightmare. In the middle of the night. Do we read something about a nightmare? Nothing. Stop saying. Do we? <laughs> the most tenuous of alliances here, I can tell. <laughs> okay, I, apparently we don't know and Bailey doesn't care. So uh, I just press space bar. No, no, no. Okay, fine. We press space bar. <laughs> I press tab, hoping it'll skip the riddle. <laughs> 
to Wuthering, Wuthering, Wuthering Heights, Heathcliff. Uh, it's Emily Bronte. Uh, our Wuthering Heights episode. All of the Bronte sisters have a planet named after them, but we've only covered Emily so far. Got it. Mm, okay, well, you've gotten two wrong now, so maybe you should really work together here, or else your spaceship will explode. <laughs> Does that kill Toby? Good. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize for stabbing her with a space butter knife. <laughs> All right, next riddle. The clocks were striking 13. Uh-oh. Um, see, now I'm in my head. Good. Isn't that one, um, what's his name, um, Ray Bradbury? Yeah, it sounds like, but we didn't read Something Wicked This Way Gums, did we? I read Fahrenheit 451. It does not need to be a book you specifically covered. Okay, but is it Ray Bradbury? No, it's not Ray Bradbury. (laughs) Because the clocks were striking 13 is not from a Ray Bradbury story. It is part of the first line of 1984 by George Orwell. Oh, uh -oh. very close. Very close. All right. So you now cannot get a single additional one wrong. Oh, okay. We will reluctantly work together. Uh, I give I give 15 hit points to Bailey with my lay on hands because I'm a space paladin. I pull out the butter knife and put it pointed to Andrew. I'm not there. Dylan did this to you. <laughs> so you have three correct, three incorrect, and only three remaining. You need all three of them to survive this challenge. Got it. Maybe you'll get this one based on what we last talked about, but it was a pleasure to read. Ray Bradbury. Yep, that one's Ray Bradbury. There you go. Back on track. Back on track. Still need to get two out of two here. Racking my brain for a wonderful clue, I came up with only this. He wrote naked. (laughs) Hugo, isn't it? Yeah, it's Hugo. Correct. It is Victor Hugo. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) I hate this computer. I hate this computer. He always (laughs) does this to us. All right. It all comes down to this. One, to save yourself to unlock this this spaceship. And if you get it wrong, you're just floating in space until you die. Hmm. This may be a good omen. Oh, well, it could be either. Have we covered Terry? We did, we've done Terry Pratchett for sure. I don't think we've done Neil Gaiman. I think it's Terry Pratchett. Terry Pratchett is at least half the right answer. <laughs> we say Terry Pratchett. <laughs> that wasn't an explosion. That was your spaceship coming back online. That is correct. <gasps> um, it was Terry Pratchett. Uh, Neil Gaiman, I do not see a planet named after him yet. Yeah, so you got exactly what you needed. Congratulations. You'll survive. Now go hunt down Dylan and his escape pod for what he's done to you. Nice. Oh, no. (laughs) That was a great game. I'm glad that that we reluctantly worked together in the end to defeat Dylan. Mm -hmm. Well, awesome game. Thank you, Andrew. Now it's time for Dylan again to mess with us. Dylan, it's time for you to (sighs) choose books at random from our shelf to read next. It's time for The Choosening. The The Choosening. The Choosening. We've given him so much power. Yeah. Well, Toby. Mm-hmm. Yes. What did you think of Bailey's book with, uh, did you like the boy, the snow, or the bird the best? Um, I don't know. You have to I'm pick. Scared. You have to pick one. Uh, I pick snow. Wrong answer. You should have picked bird because you have number six, John Cheever, Falconer. Oh, yeah. I should have picked bird. All right. I'm intrigued. I've never read any Cheever. He is a name that I see in many a used bookstore. So, yeah, we'll see how this turns out. I don't know anything about that book. Neither do I. I think I looked up good John Cheever books. There you go. Okay. And Bailey. Yep. I mean, well, I already sent you this pick, right? You checked your computer. You checked your emails. Uh Uh-huh. What? Because you have number 83, <laughs> Rodham, by Curtis Sittenfield. Oh. <laughs> oh, Dylan, they just keep oh, wow. getting worse. And I think that's actually like a skill at this point. 
<laughs> what a timely joke. I'm excited for this book. My understanding is it's what if Hillary never met Bill Clinton? Or no, what if they never got married? I think. I don't know. I'll find mm. out. Well, thank you, Dylan. So that means in two weeks on the podcast, I will be reading Rodham by Curtis Sittenfeld and Andrew is reading Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man. The Artist. Yeah, the artist. The artist formerly known as James Joyce. (laughs) Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. Joyce, Joyce, Joyce. Nice. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And if you enjoyed this podcast, recruit your nearest professor and hop in his craft uh, that travels at near the speed of light so you can go see five stars where you have (laughs) posted them on the internet. Anyway, rate us five stars on your podcast trip choice. Uh, It really helps with the visibility of the podcast and it makes us feel good. Um, And if you want to write a chilling science fiction uh, satire, don't do that. Write us a review instead because we'll really like it. Give us two opposable thumbs up. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're looking for another way to help us out, find your evil stepmother, find a magic mirror on the wall, find someone named Boy and tell them about this podcast because... Word of mouth is our best way of finding new listeners, and it really helps us spread the word. Word. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books, books. books.